Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Good times. I don't, you know, a lot of people are still very emotional about this bottom. And uh, I don't know. I still dig it. I'm, I'm still stacking. I love it. Like, <laughs> stacking sets was telling me this morning. She's like, hey, it went up. Like, it bumped up like a thousand. I'm like, damn. Yeah, I know it's fun to accumulate at 18 or so. It's, I, I agree with you. I'm I'm in the same camp as you. Uh, I'll uh, I'll accumulate at these levels for as long as I can. It's fantastic. I don't mind it. Like if it, like I people probably I don't know. I don't know where he's at. Like I I, uh, I have different conversations with clients. For example, some of them are like I'll check in with them. Like how you doing, man? And then like <laughs> well, Bitcoin's doing really crappy. You know. <laughs> It's like, how do you think I'm doing, right? <laughs> and it's like, those are the ones that I know still have a little ways to go before understanding what it is, really. Because the ones who understand it really are like, fuck yeah, let's go. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Alex, Jacob. Um, I just got up here because I wanted to share a, um, a thread that I, I read through and it was very concise, very succinct about the the White House proof of work um, paper they released. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was it was really well done by uh, Bikes and Bitcoin, the username or that's his handle. Um, yeah. So if you guys let's want go. to. Think about, yep. Yeah, let's hear it. Oh, oh my God! It, 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 the T, TLDR is uh, just a lot of like um, old school. Okay, hold up smart. a second. Hold up, hold up, Andres. We've talked about this before. Here's the rules. You can bring some shit up. You can talk about it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, read, I that. read the article. No, I read it. I read it. Uh, the TLDR is just like uh, pretty much what um, you remember when Nick uh, Nick Carter was p- producing very good papers against uh, the energy flood. Essentially, like it's it's all of that old regurgitated um, like uh, old uh, flood energy flood that that everybody's thrown at Bitcoin and proof of work algorithms. Uh, yeah. So so but but I mean like there's a little more detail in there. It's very long. I don't want to take up the stage. I gotta like jump out because uh, i gotta jump on a call here but um sorry <laughs> uh i th- i hope right, the well, tlr let's, helps. let's put it up in the nest it was also pretty okay. interesting to see it was either marty bent or odell i can't remember but basically they were kind of responding to this as well you know saying that that that, that the, if it happened a proof of work ban would not hurt bitcoin but but might cause you know big miners to uh you know 
try to cozy up to the government. <laughs> well, uh, that thread yeah. references all the Digiconomist stuff, which is just bunk. I mean, it's it's so easily refuted. He did that one paper on uh, e-waste. And like the basis of his entire paper was that an ASIC only lasts two years. Like it's, it's crazy how just justifiable, like just false it is. Um, and I don't want to say, I don't want to give too much away, but there's some really exciting stuff in the works. The details are being finalized, but let's just say we are, we are, we are working to publish counter research. It hasn't been finalized yet and who is doing it and how it's going to happen, but it's looking good and exciting to announce that soon. So you're just giving us a carrot right now, huh? <laughs> I'm, just giving a carrot. I'm just saying I'm having a very exciting conversation <laughs> yeah, at 3 p.m. today, and uh, you're going to hear a lot about it. That rule should apply to Steven, too. What should apply to Steven? That he just given us a little t tidbit, not the whole full story. Well, yeah. well to, to uh, continue off that, Andre, Stephen, um, there's something. There's a lot of stuff I've been working for, working on for Gam in the back end. Um, I've been talking about it for a while, just because like we're like we're dealing with our own things, but then we're also waiting for like the the general public environment to be more conducive to our argument. Um, but I think it could be useful to that particular initiative. Whenever we do decide to publish it, I'll send it to you like via DM or something on here. Yeah, we're 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 planning to like. Uh, I'm just the reason I'm not I'm not finalizing it is because we're picking who's going to be involved in the research and funding and those sort of things. So I don't want to I don't want to speak too confidently until it's done. But I'm very confident it'll happen. Uh, so send that over. We're looking to move quickly, and it's it's time that somebody formally refutes these fucking papers that DeVries put out. Uh, you All know, right, in, in the I'll get some conversations started over here and see if we. Uh we're okay with like sending that over immediately. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know. Let's go. Has that not already happened? Like not sufficiently about this. Not sufficiently. I mean, there's just, there's just a huge lack of re like formal journals published, like from a pro Bitcoin perspective, or at least not from an anti Bitcoin perspective. Like the, the, you know, you look at the White House report and they just cite these same few studies every time of DeVries and uh, Mora et al. And, you know, there's been some stuff, but I mean, you know, I, I had this conversation with people close to the ground and, you know, they seem to think there's a lot of room there to kind of do a formal takedown on this guy's stuff. Let's go. Oh, yeah, good academic, academic journals and stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Digiconomist, I mean, it's, it's amazing staying power that guy has considering the model's completely flawed and it's just i don't know it's either he's a bad actor or he just somehow just this this idiot got a huge microphone and everyone listens to this model which completely wrong completely wrong there's just so few people in academia that are like reviewing these papers that are responsible for the journals that like are interested in Bitcoin in any way and care to evaluate or critique. I don't know how these things, I mean, I, I can only imagine that the only way these things are getting published is the reviewers and the peer reviewers just don't care about Bitcoin whatsoever and view uh and and they kind of have like a persuade don't inform ideology when it comes to climate of just like okay this will help climate so you know fuck evaluating bitcoin let's just publish it yeah 
I mean, no one is surprised, right? This is like the fucking, this is the tactics they've used forever. By the way, uh, Jacob is on vacation today. So we have, has Dr. Sam Callahan on the swan handle. If you know, you know. Sam, check your DMs, brother. <laughs> you know, you know. All right. The climate narrative that you guys just brought up, I was listening to a podcast today, uh, happened to be talking about carnivore versus vegan diet. And uh, not that I wanted to get into that, but it seems like whoever can tie their narrative to climate change uh, gets a pass, um, you know, because, of course, climate change is the big deal. And this uh, woman was talking about all the marketing around vegan foods and you know, vegetarian, this, that, and the other thing, it's going to save the planet, you know, because eating meat uh, increases the temperature or something stupid like that. So, yeah, the narratives are so screwed up and people uh, people don't want to, I don't know, man, they don't want to think. I don't know what it is, man. And, you know, yeah. the whole narrative about Bitcoin bad for the world, born in the oceans, it's just, it's absurd. And the people that, that should look into it, this they, they don't want to or something. I, I don't get it. Where's the journalists? Where's the, the true reporting? It's just not there. Horrible. Yeah, not to not to mention all that monocropping that would be that is required for those um like diets and foods, surfer gym. Like it's terrible for the soil. Like it's it's like it requires heavy fertilizer input, like heavy water expenses, heavy diesel. It's like it's it's not better for the environment, I can tell you that. Okay, here's well, the thing. Jim, you're like continually surprised. Like, I don't get it. Why aren't these people like reporting on this? Where, where's the journalism? <laughs> Listen, bro. I'm not really me. surprised. You know that. Okay, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, we are the news now. We are the news <laughs> now. Get on the mission. Let's go. Alex is getting concerned. <laughs> yeah, what's not the concern? I'm just trying to make sure everybody's on the same fucking sheet of music here. We have, yeah. a, we have a job to do, guys. I mean, it's obvious. What's the higher click through? We're boiling the oceans or we're, we're not. I mean, come on. It, you know, boiling the oceans is going to get tons of clicks. That's all it comes down to. But by the way, since we're kind of talking about this vegan versus, you know, what are, I'm, I'm pretty excited. That there's going to be a uh, meat processing plant, if you will, here in Texas, open up like in a couple of weeks where, you know, people can take their stuff if they have it or find someone like me that, that, grows a little bit of, you know, a few cows and they could buy one from me and go get their own protein pro processed. It's still, it's USDA, but you know, it's, it's much, much, uh, you know, it's a lot better Shane, way of that, processing it. Is, is that the one that Will Cole has been working on? Uh, I, you know, I think Will is involved because he's at Unchained and Unchained Capital is kind of connected with the beef initiative guys. So, but this is, uh, the, but it's not Will, but you're right. The guy's last name, I think, the rancher that's that's kind of behind this, I think his last name is Cole. But I just saw it announced this morning, you know, like two weeks. So I'm pretty excited. It's literally driving distance for me to, you know, put a cow in a trailer and go have it processed. So Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, KNC uh, Cattle just yes. tweeted out. It was, Sorry. It was a tweet from KNC Cattle. Corporate yeah. America will no longer control my family or our customers' protein supply. Ladies and gentlemen, hometown meat market and processing in Luling, Texas is just a few weeks away from opening, and we are ready to help feed the nation. Yep, that Check is it. Check out K and like K like Kilo, A-N-D-C. Um, spe speaking, of, speaking of this topic, real quick, since I'm like, I've been closely working together with 
Texas Slim basically the whole time with the beef initiative. Um, I was trying to like get over to White Oaks Pastures on September September sixteenth for their conference, um, but I, I can't. I, I just I, I just can't swing it. It's too short a time frame. But if like anybody is interested in like seeing that stuff, I would definitely try and uh, partake in that little. They're having a very tightly knit small group uh, conference over at White Oaks Pastures. I, I would recommend it. It's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, just a clarification there. Uh, the gentleman at KNC Cattle is Cole Bolton. That's his name. I met him down at Pit Block Boom. And I believe this is just the first of many uh, proposed small-level processing plants uh, so that the uh, ranchers out there do, are not subjugated to the giant processors out there that are just uh, controlling the entire meat market around the world. And so I love to see it. Yeah, definitely. Decentralize everything. Decentralize everything. Take the power away from these assholes. By the way, quick comment about that. I realize that I swear a lot. All right, I get it. I had a guy tweet tweeted me the other day, and he's like, "Hey, you know, I try to listen to your thing, but it's like you guys swear a lot." Basically, I'm summarizing, and it's like, look, it's an adult show. We do. I'm not going to apologize for it. I mean, the guy was basically coming from the perspective of like, you know, there are some people out here who like you know they don't like that or whatever and it, it was kind of it was almost like an attempt to change the way we dialogue i don't know if it was or not but i'm gonna just put this out there and say that we're not gonna change the way we dialogue all right look this pressure that people put on other people to try to get them to say certain things and not say certain things this is the reason our country is so fucked up right now one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, right? They get guys to, to, to just shut up and be polite and say certain things and not say certain things. That's how they got you to stop talking about God and politics, people. They never stopped talking about it. Your enemies never stopped talking about it. They just got you to shut up. Alex is a dark tetrad. Let's go. The world is retarded. <laughs> Hey, and I like, Alex, what, you know, we've said before, too, about, you know, and I know this show's not about politics, and I'm not going to make it about that, but I've come to also realize that in many ways, you know, Democrat, Republican, this, that, the other, that, that you know, that has separated many of us in many ways, and it's unfortunate, you know, so, yeah, we need something different. Yeah, we, I would like to say, sorry. The, the, the challenge is, like, you look at what was what was remarkable, I think, about America, like prior to the 70s, 60s, 50s, is you had a country where people disagreed heavily, uh, but there was there was enough shared value. There was enough common truth that people who disagreed on certain political topics or other realities could still collaborate in trying to build a nation and i just think we've lost we've lost touch with that where if you disagree then you're on opposite sides and you can't find commonality in other ways weird well, it's, it's like the disconnect it's... happened when uh we like disconnected the dollar from a gold standard that's you know weird how that lines up like that right imagine that <laughs> yeah, also i just want to um, it's sorry. the thing about it's the thing about like we should be able to have a conversation, right? And not hate each other because we had a conversation. 
It's this whole thing about you're not allowed to say that because I disagree with it. That's what I disagree with. It's like, how about go fuck yourself? Yeah, we need discourse. And I, one of my primary concerns about, you know, I, I, I tweet a lot about energy. I, I talk a lot about energy. And the reason that energy concerns me so much, besides just how primary and fundamental it is to the you know functioning of, of human civilization, is that we can't the, it, the, the discourse isn't open and you need you need that discourse if we're not able to have the conversation maybe i'm wrong about my conclusions maybe the way i see what we should do isn't correct but uh, i fear that if that discourse doesn't happen if there isn't open debate that we have no idea of knowing you know what is right and wrong and that's that's my that's my largest objection to yeah. you know the steamrolling Speaking of, uh, of the topic of discourse, I just wanted to do a little public shout out of appreciation to Surfer Jim, like how polite he is in every every conversation we have. Like he doesn't try and talk over anybody. Like he'll sit there and raise his hand. It's just, it's it's nice to see. No simping. Well, I'm not simping. What's gotten, you? no, you know, I'm very afraid of what to say. So I have to watch, you know, I have to be very careful now because I'm afraid of the government. So I rarely speak my mind anymore. So I'm trying to be super polite. I want to get along with everybody. What, what was it? We had a guest last, there was a guest on the show last week, I think, um, who was talking about uh, freedom of speech. And he said that uh, the only time that you really actually have freedom of speech is when you're on your own property because you get to set the rules. But as soon as you go on to somebody else's property, you have to follow their rules. And I think it's the same thing with these spaces. When you're in a space, you just kind of got to go with whatever, whatever the whatever the rules are in the space, because, you know, that this is our opportunity to have, um, you know, a town meeting and we talk the way we talk. You know, what's so great about that is I don't think Twitter meant for it to be that way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Okay, yeah, and I, um, and I got a, I got a comment um, from Gilson. Gilson, to be clear, when I say there was more discourse in previous periods, that's not saying on every issue at all times that everything was like rationally talked about. Obviously, there was the slavery period. Obviously, there were these other things. But you look at the country as a whole, and you look at the political environment, and you can see that contentious issues of the time, at least a lot of them. Uh, there was just more, there was more discussion, you know, is my view, but I'm not obviously painting with a broad brush and saying that applies to everything. And, and if you want to look at nasty language, you should just go back to um, the, the Senate in the, the late, in the mid, the mid 1800s, particularly from about 1840 to 1860. Talk about nasty language. They didn't use swear words, but my goodness. Did you study that or something? I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> That's pretty specific. <laughs> well, I took, uh, I took Latin in college, and I would recommend reading some of like if you if for the nerds out there, it's like you guys look at some of the things that world leaders and generals were saying to each other back then. I, I agree with Peter. Like it, it was not polite in any like just because they didn't have curse words back then. It was ten times worse. I mean, look at the what? Parliament to a certain extent, right? In the UK, they they are not necessarily polite. I don't know. It's just this this idea that if you don't swear, it somehow it makes you holier and cleaner as a yes. person. I just, uh, I don't know. It, if it, I, it, I agree it, with it that. Me, Alex, it reminds me of the Bitcoin maxi discussions in the past. 
you know, oh, you're too much of a Bitcoiner. We we don't want to participate because you're offending us. It's a good point. Yeah. I I feel like people just need to fucking get thicker skin. Stop being such a baby is really what I what I think it is. And if I'm offending people, I'm sorry. Don't mostly, apologize mostly. for it, Alex. I, okay, well. I was just going to say I'm sorry, but not sorry. What, what's what's um, offending me is these people that have 100%. I'm still mad about that. Yeah, this is pretty, like, fucked. Like, it, I'm still mad about it. You know what's yeah. really lame? Yeah. So I had the 100% thing, and then I restarted my phone, and now I don't have it anymore. Well, that is a I'm, serious I'm right there with you, ripoff. Alex. What did you it learn? Horrible. There, it was like the worst tease ever. Yeah, they gave don't me all new emojis, and then they took them away. That is so lame. So what lame. What an epic trolling by the Twitter team. Ant was so happy about getting those, he was like reluctant to share how to do it. <laughs> okay, two quick things I'd like to uh, announce. Number one, Bitcoin Day in Nashville is tomorrow. You have 22 hours and eight minutes left. You can still buy your tickets. Go to bitcoinday.io slash Nashville 22. Shout out to Edward and the crew out there. Robert Breedlove's going to be the uh, the keynote speaker. Uh, so he, we had him on the show. I think it was last week. He came in, they were talking about Bitcoin Day. And I had a chance to kind of, first chance I've ever had to kind of interview Robert a little bit. And um, the dude's a genuine deep thinker, in my opinion. Relax, Peter. I'm not simping. Jesus Christ. <laughs> You can say nice things about people without simping, for fuck's sake. I think it was just two days two days ago, man. I know things move fast, but it was this week. Was I it think. two days ago? Oh, it <laughs> yeah. was two days ago. You know, all these conversations blur together faster. for me in time. Yeah, exactly. Bitcoin time is faster. You experience more in a smaller amount of time, and it feels longer even though it's faster. It's like a paradox almost. All right, one other quick thing a shout out to nuclear bitcoiner he shot me a dm he's the guy that came up here um at some point and was talking about the smrs the small modular reactors the basically the mic the nuclear micro reactor thing he is now starting to catalog all the manufacturers and, and developers of these things and he is in contact with management teams etc and he said to mention that if anybody uh, is interested in learning more about these for investment purposes, because he's talking to their, um, you know, their IR guys and all that kind of stuff. So if you are, we'll, we'll connect you. I would love to have one in my backyard, Alex. Dude, you stole <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Alex, I could, you, uh, I could see what? this happening. Like, okay, imagine this, right? Um, Bitcoin hits the numbers, right? It hits the 100K, then the 500K, then the million, then the 2 million. And wherever it goes, it goes. But, you know, I could see Bitcoiners getting together and buying these things. Like if they're 20 million bucks, I could see a group of That's Bitcoiners buying what one. What is that, like one Bitcoin, Alex? My only concern <laughs> is that where are, we getting the fuel, where are we getting the fuel for this? Do we have to get in the black market? <laughs> No, we don't talk Do you, about that on recorded conversations, Andre. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and look, where there's a will, there's a way. Here's the funny thing about, you know, okay, what's a black market? Unregulated? A black market, no. Well, okay. Storefront is a black market. A black market is actually a free market that the government doesn't like. True. 
Okay, next question. If a government makes something illegal, does it stop people from trading in it or using it? Uh, no. <laughs> it, encourage, it encourages some people. <laughs> not to mention the SMR is actually, if I'm not mistaken, they use expended fuel rods. So it's actually some just of using them. a waste product. Some of them, yeah. yeah some, some of them, them do. do. Hey, I just want to I'm say- sure that there's no such thing as a black market for that. I just wanted to say one last thing about the freedom of speech bit, and I put it up in the nest. If you haven't watched Greg Foss, his rant, it takes about a minute. Um, I highly suggest it. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, If you don't like swear words, I would advise not watching it. At one point, he says, if you haven't bought Bitcoin yet, you're fucking stupid. And if you don't like swear words, maybe you should just grow some more thick skin and watch it anyway. It was proven by science that people that swear are more honest than, than people that, that don't swear. Um, so, yeah, it's a study. Look it up. <laughs> study okay. says. A study says. <laughs> Unaligned, unpaid for study says. Yeah, I wanted to comment what Alex said. Um, yeah, a black market is simply a market uh, of people wanting to trade where another group of people um, calls it illegal. And just so we're all familiar here, the government is just other people that used to be in diapers and shit themselves just like the rest of us. And they found themselves in a position to control everybody else. And they're just a bunch of parasites wanting control over us. And so black markets are just free markets, essentially. And that's why Jim speaks politely, so he can say such scathing things that don't attract too much attention. You must not have been listening to me over the last couple of years because I'm generally not this reserved. <laughs> and by well, the way, been, the bull market is back. Years, I can tell you the, that. The bull market is back, folks. Uh, 8% today, 13% over the last three days. Uh, Bitcoin's on a tear. Yeah, New Yorker from New Yorker construction worker doesn't swear, really. What fucking New York fucking construction fucking worker doesn't <laughs> fucking swear? Come on, motherfuckers. <laughs> okay. Open you guys up want to talk about worms early. You guys want to talk about some news items? We got some Let's we do got it. some stuff. We got some stuff. Uh there is uh, this really cool thing that Corey shared this morning. I guess this is a clip from a Reddit forum. I'm going to read it. Really cool. Yeah. By the way, this this guy actually types this way, so this is not me being like, you know, whatever. I'm just reading it. So, me, being a millennial, I am very surprised and shocked that how learning things about Bitcoin has removed all the consumerist instincts to buy useless things that doesn't add any value in my life. It took me four months of self-convincing to buy a laptop. It was a constant struggle of me asking myself, do I really need it? I would rather buy Bitcoin with it. It became evident that I would need it only when it will improve my life in some way. Only when I saw that I could do awesome projects that I always wanted to do. And will make me happier, I bought myself a laptop. And the specs that I got would last for a good five to six years. According to me, we, the re-evaluation of what is valuable for me, 
And what will make me happier is the real benefit of the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I know there's a lot of people juggling with the same kinds of things. Would love to know your side of the story. When I read that, I thought, it's working. It's working. It's, it's awesome. I think it, I think it speaks to... Um, you, you can kind of look at like the last 50 years as not just people, not just like consumers and how people spend their money, but our entire economy... Um, was is, is just oriented around fragility right that's that's globalization essentially we make our supply chains more fragile in exchange for efficiency yeah it's more profitable but as soon as a conflict breaks out like you can't get critical materials semiconductor chips get blockaded by china for example um and and it, you kind of see it in the same way in like the the average person's life we prioritize or people prioritize just spending and consuming and buying stuff. The savings rate in America is very low. People have very little in savings. And part of that's the system. And part of that is obviously economic conditions. But even people who, who could save often don't. Um, and it, it just, I don't know, to me, it just mirrors the same. Um, we don't prioritize resiliency. No one is thinking about it. Uh, you know, or at least many people aren't thinking about adversity. They aren't thinking about what happens if you lose your job, what happens if something unexpected comes up and that that's saving of capital and resources. I, I really believe like makes the system work better. Uh, even if you lose like a little bit of like top line revenue or profit, like the system's a little less profitable, it's much more resistant to shocks. And I think it's you know far better in the long run. Hey, Stephen, that sounded just like time preference, low time preference versus high time preference. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just the, the, the ludicrousness of like the Keynesian, like, uh, what would you call it? Like modus operandi or whatever. Um, claiming that every single dollar in the system needs to be circulated through like it, like it's just it, like like when you t like and it, it, for a good example is just look at the supply chains over the last two years like you if you increase efficiency too much then the resiliency of the entire system gets sacrificed to like abysmal like ends it's just yeah i agree Absolutely. i mean even gdp if you look at what gdp really is it's make money go fast that, that's what it has turned into. It's turned into the speed at which money circulates the system. And then there is this logical leap. There's this assumption that when money circulates faster, it produces capital in terms of like it produces productive resources. But that's such an assumption in my mind. That's such a that's such a, a starting point that I'm not willing to accept. Um they they just assume that all you need to do is flush a system with money and people magically invent productive resources, new technologies, new efficient factories. And, and, and they don't. Like capital allocation is a very deliberate process. And I think we've gotten away from these basics. Yeah, I would add to that that um, capital, capital accumulation is how it's supposed to start first. Uh, we live in such a debt-based monetary system that people borrow to start businesses, whereas in the past people saved to start a business and they could save because the money they were saving in held its value. And so everything's gotten flipped on its head as far as how the economy works, how businesses operate, you know, where the risks actually are. It's so obfuscated because of layers of 
bullshit and bureaucracy and, and all of that. And this low time preference that people in Bitcoin are starting to adopt is going back to that type of those type of roots. Like I got to save for my future. And if I do it in this thing called Bitcoin, my purchasing power is likely to not only remain, but increase. And now the incentive is to save again. And I could see, you know, five, 10, 15 years from now, a huge amount of brand new startup businesses from people that have saved their Bitcoin and have plenty of resources to go out and start that new company. Uh, you know, I, I, that's why we're here, right? Getting on the mission to help explain this to people. The average person has no idea what low or high time preference even is. They just act and they act well, because of the influences around them. Yeah, it's the opposite of the inflation effect, the opposite of the fiat money effect. Well, it isn't it? The, is, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it drives the cost of capital higher. And I think that's a good thing. There, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book currently. It's the history of interest and interest rates. And it's incredible how much we have overlooked. There's this assumption that people tried in the 1700s and 1800s that thought they could just lower interest rates and make money cheap and make money abundant and it would cause growth. And, and we learned back then that that wasn't true. It didn't actually work out that way. And that in many ways, societies actually functioned better when interest rates were higher, meaning it was more expensive to borrow money. And so like the cost of capital goes up and uh, it's just a given, like what you're saying, it increases the savings rate. It increases, yeah, that drives the cost of capital higher. And I think that's a good thing. Capital is artificially cheap. Money is artificially cheap and it causes us to fund all of these ridiculous companies. And if, and if I can add to that, it's kind of funny, Stephen, because I was going to mention something similar. I, I think that with if the cost of capital is high, then you know companies have to do much a lot more due diligence with regards to their business plan, all the things to to really truly believe in what they're doing, rather than you know not having to worry so much about getting cheap money. Rather than throwing mm. millions and billions of dollars at twenty thousand fucking shit coins. Bitcoin is the crucible. It punishes capital misallocation and it rewards efficient savings and use of capital. Yeah, that's 100%. exactly right. Like it should not be, you know, we live in a system where you can raise millions of dollars on, 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 on nothing. And that, that, you know, lack of Look at shit coins. Look at shit yeah. coins. I mean, are you joking me? Well, oh what, what, was, what was the whole like move in Silicon Valley is like, if you're going to make something, you can't be making money. Like if you want to get funding, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Well, and that's a smoke screen. That's literally what that is. Is it saying once you actually have revenue, people are going to look at your numbers. But if you don't have any revenue and you don't have a product and you don't make any money, then people are just going to look at your idea and they can just sell a dream and a hope. And it's why it's almost harder to do a Series B than a Series A. Um, but that's insane. Like that is, I mean, it's insane. And I, I, I would, I, I'm a full advocate for a system where it is much harder to raise money, but it is much more expensive to borrow money. People need to evaluate their investments because it's worth it to hold money because storing your savings in money in Bitcoin, you're not getting debased. It's worthwhile. It holds value. So you're not in a rush to funnel all of your cash into some new, new project. And if you're going to invest your capital in a project, it better be damn good because the Bitcoin's valuable and that improves the functioning of the system in my mind. 
I would encourage anybody, everybody and anybody to listen to the recent podcast with Saitha Dean and Elise Colleen, and they get deep into this whole thing. Her company, her investment uh, company, uh, she, she discussed this exactly, what you're describing, that they are looking for companies that have an actual product that's going to actually produce revenue like investors used to do years ago when when startups, you know, people had an idea and then they compared it to, you know, the whole shitcoin industry where it's all about hopium. It's all about what our token's going to do one day. And VCs are just throwing insane amounts of money at these things, pumping up the narrative with no actual product, no revenue whatsoever. And then the rug pull and, you know, 14-year-old traders in their mom's basement on their dad's credit card are losing you know, money here because, you know, the market is so broken, but yeah, mm. we get back to, we get back to that, you know, there's actual value in a company. They're actually producing a product that makes revenue that we can actually get our investment back. I think we're going to move to that over time. And Bitcoin is definitely helping. In well, my we're opinion. moving, we're moving back in the direction of capitalism. So I mean, that is, that's such a key point. Sorry, Alec. That's such a key point. I just want to say this, that part of the reason, part of how we got here is equity shares stocks became store of value they've become a store of value why is that a problem it's a problem because an equity is actually a debt it's it's actually a liability the higher the price of the stock goes the higher the valuation of the equity the more cash flow you need to generate to pay back your shareholders and so th there's there's a reality that it, it can't just go up infinitely it's actually an obligation to pay back cash flows. But as soon as we started to think of it as just like a store of value, it's just something you own and it goes up. We have just completely neglected this this concept of equity is actually a liability to a company. Well, and, and also it, it created the casino because now instead of yeah. betting on the business, now you're betting on what other people think the business is worth. And that's a completely different thing. It's moving back to capitalism. There's this great book. I mean, we're going to talk about it later today. Bitcoin is Venice. I'm reading this. Stephen already read it, but I'm just starting to get through it now. There's some really good things in there. But the basis of capitalism is capital, right? What does that mean? Savings and capital formation, savings. Well, if your money is worth less tomorrow than it is today, the incentive is to spend it, not save it. So fiat has created this entire hamster wheel of spend, 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 spend versus save. And what it's really doing is, is it's harvesting all the capital of all the generations that came before that were saving. So all the capital formation, for example, in the United States since its inception is being harvested and taken away from the people. I would argue that even future revenue is being taken away from people when they print money and, and create new debt for future generations to have to pay off. It's, it's absolutely insane what they're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to, yeah. Good to see you guys. Um, and I, I really love what Surfer Jim talks about and you, you hear in those, those wives olden days of um, just saving your money first than than buying and low time preference, and it's it's funny because Surfer Jim and, and uh, Craig Ship come around a lot, so a lot of times we'll have a boomer room going when we can tell the way back when stories. But even in today's um, uh, way of just borrowing at such cheap um, 
rates. It, it's been cool to see, like in my local community, the people that still have those old style uh, values that really don't overextend themselves and still still pay pay cash as they go. Uh, I got to go know this guy. He um, had gone overseas. He had trained as a chef, and he, he was quite accomplished. And when he cu- came back, um, he. He could have just, uh, you know, borrowed a, a huge amount, got the fanciest restaurant, and started up. Um, but he had a very low time preference mind, and this, uh, he just did not want any risk. So he he got this small little place in a strip mall, and it, you know he had a bakery. Okay, Italian guy, Italian, so he starts just as a bakery. All right, paying cash as he goes. Once he had enough, he expanded to be open for lunch hours. But he put quality product out there. And people kept coming and coming, so he moved the store. So he actually moved his restaurant, and it got it got bigger. He started offering dinners, and that got so big, he he bought the place next to him. But he was just paying as he goes. But what was great, man, is when you see these economic downturns, is it's those are the guys that that can weather the storm, and because they were a little time preference. So I always love to see that, even in the fiat world. Yeah. I'm building. I want to quickly shout out to Jan Pritzker, who's in the audience. Jan, I'm throwing you a follow if you are – not a follow. I'm sorry. I'm already following you. I'm throwing you an invite if you want to come up and, and talk. Of course, you're, you're not obligated to do so. It's just if you want to. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Covey said. I've had my own construction company for over 30 years, and I didn't borrow a dime. All I did was I made profits, and I kept buying more tools, and I kept reinvesting in myself. And I have zero debt because of it. I own every bit of equipment I have. And uh, the work just keeps coming to me because I did quality work. Uh, I tried to always do high quality work and honor my word uh, because I just that was my impression of how you did things. You know, I'm an older guy. So um, I grew up in a a time where you put out value and you got paid for it. You didn't you didn't promise things that you couldn't deliver like we see all all the time around us now. So, you know, I'd love to see a time where people go back to that. Save some money and start your business. Don't borrow to do it. You know, uh, it just for me, it's been I'm not like the greatest, most uh, you know, wealthy businessman. But I'll tell you, I had control over my own life. No one could push me around. I didn't owe anybody anything. And I just got to live my life, uh, you know, the way I wanted to. And it's made a huge difference in how I've become, you know, the person I've become for good or bad. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Pubby, the thing you're describing, you're describing capital formation. Like it's you're describing this process by which capital is formed and kind of the the argument people on the other side would make, well, what if he could have done it faster if he borrowed the money and wouldn't that have promoted more growth? And like the problem with that argument is one, you're now exposed to leverage. And if there is a downturn, like you said, you're more likely to not be able to weather it. And then two, now we're giving out loans to, you know, the, the lender cannot determine beforehand who is going to be successful and create capital. So we end up giving a lot of loans to people who's, and not that this can, you know, always be determined and there's value in experimentation, but the easier it is to get a loan, the more we lend to people whose businesses fail. And that is a destruction of capital. And so like you're describing this organic process where capital is created and it's just it's a healthier system between the leverage and the misallocation hey guys uh just wanted to weigh in a a little bit back we're talking about uh just um um something that triggered uh like a a concept in my mind of conspicuous consumption and how much our society runs in on conspicuous consumption that that impulse buy that you know that 
yeah, like accumulating junk you don't need, right? And and stripping away your hard-earned work. And, you know, especially if you have little people in your life, you know, um, they are constantly being marketed at such dark arts of marketing level, subliminal level. Like, and it, it starts from the very time you go to the, you know, convenience store and then you, you see you know, all the, all the gum and the candy at eye level. And I'm not saying like deprive your kids from treats or whatever, but like teach them self discipline, teach them about the concept of like conspicuous consumption and how that's targeting them. And like, start to talk to them early about this and build some self discipline. I think, you know, most people be familiar with the marshmallow test. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, like that, it, Okay, Jaime, question for you then. How do you do that? How do you teach them self-discipline? How do you teach them uh, low-time preference? When they're they're in the candy aisle and at eye level, they want the candy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's constant parenting for sure, and, and it's saying no. And we have a hard time saying no as parents, especially if you are in a privileged position where you can do it. I remember as a kid growing up, you know, it was it was a hard no because we couldn't afford it, right? But but as yeah, but, but the, okay. A- so my question is though, is that teaching them self discipline and low yeah. time preference? Because look, I'm a parent too, and I thought you had some magical. Uh, solution to this problem because that's all I did too. No, <laughs> the question is, does that teach them that? I don't know if it does or not. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still trying genetic. to figure it out. <laughs> I would say your example, Alex, is what's going to teach them. When when you just tell them no and they don't understand why, it it takes time, and you just have to be the example. And kids see it over a long enough period of time. But if they see high time preference with you and your wife and you know, the people you're around okay. buying stupid stuff. Yeah, they're going to mimic that. Let me, let me let me rephrase it because, I mean, I don't know that that, I'm not sure that actually matters. Does Okay, let me ask you guys this question for the panel in general. Do any of you know young children who are self-disciplined with low time preference? And if so, how did they get that way? No, it's a process. I mean, you come to it. All right, so is it fair to say that, like, that's probably not realistic for a child? Because I know I was pretty high in time for reference for most of my life. Um, I was I was well into adulthood before that started to change. Alex, here's what I do. I, I have I have a teenager that's just got a job and, and I you know what I said to her is like, look, um, the money that you put away I will match, but you gotta keep it in there for, for a year. And, uh, and if you, and if you convert it into Bitcoin, I will even add a little extra. Right. And so, so it's like allowing them to have choices and, 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 and seeing and showing them that there is a, um, you know, a, a, yeah, like a low time preference benefit to it. And it's like, and, uh, so she's put a little, you know, we're, we're going down to El Salvador. So she's saving up for that. That's her goal. So she's saving some some money and I'm, I'm matching it and when the time c- comes to to cash it out you know then then i'll give her and, and so there's a reward there right and so you know but but yeah like children by by nature they're they're high time preference for sure yeah okay wicked we got a lot of hands here so we're gonna go yeah, around quickly I'll, here i'll go i'll go quick um i mean i i personally know a couple of 
fairly young children who have pretty uh, low time preference. Um, I'm pretty sure they would pass the marshmallow test, for example. <laughs> and these kids are, are, you know, maybe four or five years old. And one key difference I see in their um, upbringing is their parents um, and or guardians, you know, whoever's taking care of them, are uh, they, they treat them uh, very maturely like they 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 talk to them they explain to them a lot of things even if you even if they don't necessarily think the kids would understand completely what they're explaining they they take the time to really explain like everything and i know this doesn't work for all the children right there's some children who have <laughs> just a, a very short um uh you know uh, attention span so it's hard to do this with everyone but for the kids that have a longer attention span. Um, I think taking the time to explain things in detail, uh, like they're like they're a fucking adult, uh, works a lot for them. Interesting. Okay, Ant. Yeah, I just wanted to share a pr- uh, proud dad moment. You know, because I think that in order to to do this, like somebody said a minute ago, that it, it comes to the parents too, and like how they're how they're handling. You know, they're you know teaching their kids. But I mean, the thing is, is like I try to work these moments into my kids' lives, like. And this just happened the other night. We went to this like restaurant and at the, whenever you come out, they have these two big gumball machines, you know, they're like huge or like taller than the kids and it like spirals down, super exciting for kids. I'm not really one on impulse buys. And so I usually like steer away from stuff like that, but I also don't want to like, you know, take away from their fun little childhood. So if they're being good, you know, and they're coming out, I wanted to give them some, we also hadn't given them some for a long time. Every time we go, they see it. So anyway, this time I had four quarters in the truck. And so I had gotten them. I gave two to one and two to the other. And I told them that they could get, you know, two, you know, it's up to them. They could either get none and just save it, or they could get, you know, two gumballs and like blow the money or, or they could get one and save the other quarter. And that was literally all I like proposed to them. There was no like added benefit of, you know, if you save it, I'm going to give you two later or none of that. It was just, those were the options and it was cool. It, you know, I think my daughter got peer pressured in cause my son did it first, but at the same time, I, they both chose to get one gumball and then save the other quarter. And I'm telling you, we were super excited. So it can be done. It can be done. Well, there you go. And Swan private macro Friday turns into how to raise low time perfect <laughs> children. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was hang on, sir. Hang on, Jim. Sorry, We're going to go with Rob. You had plenty of opportunities to talk this morning so far. Rob's first time up here. Good morning, Rob. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for, for having me up here. Um, I, I just wanted to share a story. I think um, uh, cultures and environment um, play a, di- a big difference in, in raising children. And I'll give an example. I was raised in a developing country before I came over here. Vastly different cultures. Um, I was raised by a family of entrepreneurs. So what you want to get, you got to work for. So as a little kid, I remember my dad telling me, hey, listen, if you want something, uh, if you want to buy this, then you have to save for it. I'll give you a job. Then we come into to, to the, uh, to the business and we start to work and we would have tons of fun, creates a parent-child relationship like I've, I've never actually seen in, in my life ever been repeated. So I instill this in my children, right? For example, if I wanted to buy any type of instrument, they'll be like, you got to work the summer. Here's how, how much I'm going to pay you an hour. Here's you, you can you can do your own. You can do your own math. It, it taught us about finances at the same time. 
Uh, so there, there, there is ways that you can constantly um, instill this in your children. And I did this. I came to the U.S., uh, built my life here, and I did this with my two daughters. And, I, um, and, and they have the same values. They're Bitcoiners. They, they understood this. So I know that it can be done at a micro level that, that, can, that can expand out. And I, I just wanted to kind of uh, tell that story a little bit. Very cool. Okay, let's go with Jim. Then we should probably hit some announcements and then we can keep rolling. Shout out to Corey Clipston, the CEO of Swan Bitcoins, also in the audience. So we've got Corey and Jan. Uh, we're going to throw both of you guys invites here in a little bit. If you want to come up, you're welcome to. Jim, go ahead. Hey, I'll just be quick. Um, I, I think it helps if you're not super rich when you grow up because uh, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family and my mom showed the example of having to save for things. And uh, I was taught how to work and save my own money as a kid, you know, mowing people's lawns or shoveling snow in the winter. And uh, it wasn't until I got much older that I really understood the trade-offs because I partied away way too much money. But I do think that if, uh, if you can set the example as a parent, even if you're wealthy, show your children your own low tide preference by waiting and saving. And then I would encourage everybody out there that's hearing my voice right now, especially if you've got kids, but even for yourself. Have them write down and do it yourself a list of everything you ever wanted and that you could ever think of, no matter how crazy it sounds, and keep adding to that list and keep checking it off. When you show your kids, you teach them how to make a list and then look at that list and prioritize and then explain to them the concept of we have to balance between what we want now and what we want eventually because it's very clear some goals cannot be had tomorrow and some can. And when you teach a child those differences, they start to think in a lower time preference. Like, wait a minute, if I don't start now, I say it this way. If you've got a plan that's going to take five years, but you wait five years to start, it's now a 10-year plan. So I See, think those are good the value. This is the value of hanging out at Cafe Bitcoin. You get basic success principles, too. It's fantastic. Cover all kinds of things here. Uh, okay, cool. Let's... By the way, to quickly add to that, you could also make lists of what you want to be and what you want to do too, not just what you want to have. Food for I was, I would say that's part of the list. Everything you ever wanted, which is things to have or things to be or, or people to know or status, it doesn't really matter. Anything that you thought, I would love to have that. That's the first list everybody should make in their life. That will be the road the roadmap to the rest. Do of you your remember life. the things that you have though, or do you remember? Dude, I have my list from nineteen eighty five still. Sorry, deep yeah. I, I remember. Breath. Sorry, sorry. Surfer Jim. Wow. He's just spirited. I, know. I am. So, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But I have a list that I, I, I learned this concept in 1985, and I have a huge list, and I'm constantly looking at it and changing it. Dude, I, I don't disagree with you. I'm just giving you a hard time. All right. You are listening <laughs> to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. We do this every single day, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, and to learn about Bitcoin. It's also a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry to just drop in here, talk about what's going on. It is a podcast up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple. If you want to know about when those drop, you can throw myself or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when they drop. Something that's really cool is coming up called the Pacific Bitcoin well, it's Pacific Bitcoin. It is a conference coming up in November 10th and 11th in Santa Monica, California. I am super excited for this thing. Um, it's going to be hosted by Stefan Levera, Natalie Brunel, Peter McCormick, whom I'm sure many of you love. 
<laughs> we're gonna have the speaker great great speakers we're gonna have Corey, jan lynn jeff booth dylan leclerc i could go on and on and on like all of your favorite speakers are going to be there. We have some announcements on the ones that are coming up that we haven't revealed yet. They're going to blow your mind. You're not going to want to miss this, guys. PacificBitcon.com to buy your tickets. You can use promo code CAFE, all caps, for 30% off. Uh, some quick stuff about Swan. So I work with Swan. Swan's an, an awesome company. I love it. Um, I work with Swan Private. If you want to know more about that, you can shoot me a DM. If you have a business and you want to put Bitcoin on your business balance sheet, we can help you with that. It, you don't have to live in the United States. We can take customers from all around the world. Some people are confused about that. Like, you know, I'm not from the U.S. I can't be a Swan client. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Uh, we have a new Swan IRA product. If you want to convert, if you're, you know, from the U.S., you want to convert your existing IRA into Bitcoin, we can help you do that. We just launched Swan Advisor Services. If you guys have a financial advisor or a registered investment advisor who you, who you are a client of and you've been trying to get them to help you buy Bitcoin, but they can't because they either don't know how or they don't have the platform, guess what? They can do it now. We can do it through Swan. So connect with us and we're happy to help you with that. All righty then. Back to the stuff. We talked briefly about the whole shitcoin phenomenon a little bit ago. Uh, I'd like to get into that a little bit. Apparently, the head of the SEC says that most cryptocurrencies are operating illegally of the nearly 10,000 tokens in the crypto market. I believe the vast majority are securities. That's Gary Gensler said that on September 8th. Offers and sales of these thousands of crypto security tokens are covered under the security laws. So we've talked about this many times in this space, but it's just reinforcing, reiterating, that's his stance. And uh, he's fine with the CFTC having oversight over Bitcoin because he considers Bitcoin to be a commodity. The only one that he considers to be a commodity with any certainty. This is a huge difference from a regulatory standpoint. So for, so for those of you who are still confused about that, don't shitcoin, it's bad for you. Any thoughts, guys? Jim? Yeah, he left room for some shit coins to not be considered securities. If you reread that first sentence, he said something like the majority of them or something. And he knows better. He, should, he, he knows better. He taught a course on Bitcoin at MIT years ago. And, uh, you know, maybe it's political. Maybe he's trying to, you know, pacify somebody. But it should have been a little more direct. Everything other than Bitcoin. Dude, you're not going to get everything you want. You're not I gonna know, get everything you want. I know, but he's look. Just, I he's think, in a gray area. I think the fact that he said that Bitcoin's the only one that he's absolutely certain about as being a com commodity is a positive thing. So take 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 the wins, bro. Fair enough. Uh, it's just it's still it's a hard line, and it's just political to not take it take the real stance. I, you know, I don't, why do they do it? I don't know. We do it. What's the difference? Because we don't have his job and we're afraid of somebody? I don't know. Wicked, did you have some thoughts? Did I have some thoughts? I, I didn't have my hand up, but but I mean, I, I guess... I saw you come off a mic, which indicates <laughs> you had something. <laughs> oh, did I do that? I don't know. It might have just been a slip of the finger. Um, I mean, I guess I do have some thoughts. Uh, I, don't, I wasn't planning on saying them, but um, I don't know. I mean, I think it, I, I think it is political, obviously. Uh, he's 
you know, even though he's not a politician, technically he's, he is a politician, right? He's like, he has to do certain things, uh, to keep his position. Um, and so he's going to do those things in his own self-interest. I don't know what other shit coins he has on his mind that are possibly not securities in his opinion. I have some ideas of, of what ones they might be. It's probably, if I had to guess, um, Ethereum and maybe some other proof of work, you know, early cryptocurrencies, uh, which don't necessarily have like rulers behind them. So like, you know, shit coins like Doge and stuff. But I don't know. It's it's kind of irrelevant, really. I think the the point of this is kind of what you were saying, Alex, is that he's saying... Def, like definitively that bitcoin is you know 100 percent not a security and then most of everything else is in his opinion 100 percent a security and then there's maybe a little bit of gray room from other things but it doesn't really matter yeah hey this is moonbags Fair points sam what up moon hey good morning hang on one second here sam sure No, I just uh, in that paper or letter that Gensler wrote, I, I liked his uh, lawyer question, which I think is an important question to ask just in general. Like, he's like, I have a question for the lawyers in the audience. Do you represent any clients regarding their token projects? And then he says, I'm going to guess that you did not take on the work on behalf of a dispersed, unidentified group of individuals in an ecosystem. Highlighting that, you know, there's no CEO of Bitcoin. Uh, they can't hire a lawyer to protect their project because it is truly decentralized. And so any of these other token projects with foundations or uh, centralized companies running them, they're going to have a whole team of lawyers uh, in VC. And that alone is, I think it's a good test. So I just like that little part of it. Yeah, that's a good angle. I mean, you know, ultimately you have these scenarios where, people are receiving funds on behalf of the project slash coin slash protocol slash token. And then they're using those funds to hire, you know, legal representatives and employees and stuff. And I mean, you know, you're talking, that's a, that's a business, you know, that's a corporation. That's what that is. 100% seems pretty obvious to me. Wicked. So um, this is kind of on a, a different note, similar vein. Um, I was wondering if anyone has thoughts on uh, the, the news of Coinbase bankrolling um, some lawsuits against the Treasury Department following the tornado cash ban. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, I think the reason behind this is Coinbase is a very large staker in Ethereum. They don't want to have to be the ones to um, block transactions once they switch to proof of stake, which is what would happen. If uh, this tornado cash thing blows up and goes through, so now they're bankrolling lawsuits against the Treasury Department, and you know it's a similar vein, right? Like you have you have a protocol now which has been more or less captured by a few large entities, and so is fairly centralized. Um, and even though this, you know, doesn't you know it, it doesn't really have to do with whether or not it's a security, it's still in a similar vein of like what does it mean to be decentralized and why is that important for cryptocurrencies? Yeah, the tornado cash thing, I think, is a, is a little nuanced just because they could 
if they succeed at it, they could very easily turn around and apply that precedent to Bitcoin. So it is something, you know, I've watched closely. I think, you know, you can argue that like a right to privacy is a right to privacy. Um, and that's pretty separate from like whether the coin is a security, whether there's it's, you know, useful, whether it's frameworks or anything like that. But I, I you know, I, I do hope privacy wins here. And I think it's good for Bitcoin if it does. I, I would say, I mean, just in response to that, I would say that it, it kind of, you know, to, to an extent, it doesn't matter as much for Bitcoin as it does for these other cryptocurrencies, because for them, you know, if this goes negatively for that, right, then Coinbase being one of the largest stakers and a bunch of other, you know, exchanges and, and large stakeholders um, will have to abide by those rules because they're, you know, large entities that have to follow regulation. Whereas with Bitcoin, you know, you're going to have like, Miners in Russia and North Korea and other fucking places that don't give a fuck and they're going to still confirm, you know, transactions or include transactions and in blocks. You might have to wait a little bit longer, but you'll still get your transactions through eventually, especially if you pay high transaction fees. So like for one system, it matters a lot. For another system, it matters not as much, you know. I hear you. I mean, I, I mean, I agree that it messes up all of these business models for Coinbase and staking and you have this thing where if like fungibility is disrupted on the base layer, like all, all of these protocols, all this DeFi stuff kind of falls apart. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't envy a world where, you know, Bitcoin is only mined in hostile regimes to the United States. Like I don't, I don't, that's really not the scenario I, I prefer for sure. I, I view that as a negative. Yeah. I mean, I'm not one to um, usually agree with Coinbase or <laughs> support them. I've written a whole threads about, uh, you know, criticizing their business practices. But at the same time, I have to support them here. I know, I know they probably have some business interest to go after this. But at the same time, this is an attack on freedom of speech and code. And it, it, I think it does have kind of more broader significance to Bitcoin. And um you know, they have the resources, they have the best lawyers, they have a ton of money, one of the earliest exchanges. So they're one of the only people that probably are incentivized to actually fight the treasury on this. Uh, so I actually applaud this uh, from Coinbase and Brian Armstrong. And it's, it's so important that we protect privacy and the freedom of speech in the digital age. And this is just an ongoing battle that's been going on for decades. And it's crazy what happened with Tornado Cash. I mean, more Bitcoiners, I think, should be raising their voice about it because, you know, there's some there's a dev in jail out in, I think, the Netherlands right now for basically just writing code. And that's it's just insane. And it should be fought. It's a violation of our human rights. So I got to support Coinbase a little bit on this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you, Sam. I mean, ultimately... You know, there's a dev that wrote code that's in jail, and I don't care that that code was written on a protocol I don't support. I don't care that they, you know, I, I don't, I don't really care, right? Like, you know, it's a separate discussion of Bitcoin versus Ethereum, or the capital dynamics around it, or how they're raising money, or how it facilitates scams. It's just a question of like someone made a privacy protocol on the internet and got arrested, and I can't, I can't support that. I don't, I don't care what it's on. I have, I have one thing that I wanted to, it's not part of this conversation, I didn't want to interrupt, but I'm about to 
head out and listen to the mining uh, discussion and the mining and environment discussion over at Bitcoin Archives space. Um, but I wanted to announce for like the Swan guys and particularly Steven, because you brought it up earlier, that I got the green light to help you guys with that whole initiative. Um, I sent you a DM. So just uh, if you could respond with that so I can uh, get an email to send my PDFs over. Thank you, my man. I will take a look at that right now. Yep, I see it. You're a stud. We appreciate that, Mike. Everything except for your comment about leaving us to go to somebody else's space. You're a jerk. See you later. <laughs> See you guys later. Massive L, bro. <laughs> Massive L. Got to announce that shit. What's up with that? Thank you, though. Thank you, Mike. I have to tell me what do you got? At every opportunity. Okay. Hey, I thought I'd weigh in on, on this conversation. Um, I certainly don't want to say that I am in favor of governments violating people's rights, but I'm also realistic enough to know that governments do violate people's rights. And this is what's so powerful. It's such a simple sounding word, decentralization, but it really has deep, deep implications because the implication is it's ungovernable or uncorruptible or unregulatable. And and this is what creates this game theoretic situation where if governments can't control it, they eventually acquiesce and accept it. If you can't beat it, you join it. And so I don't think that there's a scenario in which because it's permissionless, Bitcoin is outlawed in the United States of America for any period of time lasting more than a couple of months at most. But I don't think it ever even happens. What, what ends up happening is the kind of thing that happened on Tornado Cash can't happen within the Bitcoin base layer because as long as there's some other nation that can effectively mine a couple of blocks in a row or some other car combination of nations that can effectively mine a couple of blocks in a row, then Bitcoin remains censorship, censorship resistant against all foes and this thing that we're generally opposed to, all of us, can survive. And it doesn't need the benevolence of government. It doesn't need the uh, non-corruptibility of government. And I think that's the big hump that we're trying to get over as a society right now. Democracy, majority rule, all these benevolent-sounding things are used to violate the rights of people. Um, and, and they're used on a global scale, not just within America. This is a worldwide phenomenon. And now we have something that no government can rule, no government can control. And that's really the big breakthrough here. And as much as we don't want to see certain attacks take place from the government, at the end of the day, they're actually beneficial because when the government fails at some form of control or attack, they realize, well, I couldn't beat them, so I've got to join them. And I think that this is playing out in more than just the tornado cash example, it's taking place on world energy markets, it's taking place on a lot of fronts. And what we're seeing is where, where so much intervention is taking place to try to limit the freedom of others, the exit to that limitation keeps moving in the direction of, of Bitcoin as a solution because it's just genuinely decentralized, uncontrollable thing where no rulers can change its rules and no rulers can limit the operation of its rules. That, that's my little, um, you know, the government doesn't care that what you care about or some government in the world doesn't care what you care about. 
So you want a system where they can't violate your rights anyway. So I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of this quite a bit. Um, I view that as just like a very non-optimal, non-optimal, non-preferable scenario. Like my, my Goldilocks scenario for Bitcoin is gradual growth, gradual adoption until it is 10x the size it is now before any sort of more direct confrontation. I, I I, I really do think we want the thing to just kind of continue to grow in the way it, it does until everyone in the world has so much capital wrapped up in it that it's not only like, can the mining network survive? Can the network survive? But even just like doing something that would negatively impact the price would be like de detrimental on, on, a, on a national scale to the amount of money that has evolved in the network. Like, to me, that is the optimal scenario by far. I'm not, I, disagreeing, yeah. about, I'm not disagreeing about what's optimal. I'm just saying we, you can't decide what's optimal because you're not the king of the, of the government or of all the different governments, right? Like, it would be optimal if Vladimir Putin didn't invade the Ukraine, and it would be optimal if our leaders in the West were a little bit more intelligent and planful and honest. But these things aren't necessarily true. And I'm not, I'm not predicting exactly what's going to happen. I'm just saying the, the fact that this thing is engineered to survive no matter what non-Goldilocks path we follow is yeah. what guarantees that we're going to come out the other side of this tunnel where the light is at the end of the tunnel. And we don't need to hope and pray that our benevolent overlords take us down a Goldilocks path. They can take us down a really nasty path and we still succeed. And I think that's what... That's when the light bulb comes on for people to say, might as well take the Goldilocks path or try and test the non-Goldilocks path and see that I'm the one who gets hurt trying that path. So get back on, get back on the righteous path. And like that, that is, that's the point that I'm trying to make. It's not, oh, we should be attacked. It's great if we're attacked. It's like, you know what? There are pros and cons of both. If we only take the Goldilocks path and never get challenged, we'll never get the adoption because many people will remain skeptical and they'll say, well, the thing claims to be able to withstand attacks, but it's never been attacked because it's being treated with kid gloves. Yeah, so, but like, that, it just cuts both ways. Yeah, but that's assuming that the reason that like mass population is going to buy Bitcoin is because they're going to like suddenly have this like self-sovereign moment where they like wake up and decide that, my God, I need to have my money in a, in a, in a sovereign vehicle, as opposed to, I think the reason the majority of people come to use Bitcoin is just because it's a better store of value. I mean, that's, I think that's more consistent with value systems that the average person has. Again, I don't, I don't actually think I disagree with any of what you're saying, Stephen. I just, I, and so I, I probably am not making my point quite clearly enough. It's just that <laughs> there's lifeboats in case things don't go right. And, I, and we don't and get I to decide, we don't get to decide how rough the seas are going to be. Yeah, of we course, just have something like that. That's, that's kind of my point. It's both. And, and I agree that like the network will survive, like the network will persist. I'm not. And I, and I feel like that's part of the core point you're making. So I'm obviously not disagreeing with that. I just, uh, man, that's really not the path I want to see this thing go down. Yeah. It's kind of like we have a lot of these kind of discussions and I've, I've observed that like there's, there's two paths 
and it's both simultaneously. One path is you just exit the current monopoly board, cross the bridge, go onto the Bitcoin monopoly board. As Jeff Booth points out, you cannot change the system from within the system. You have to change the system outside the system. Yet, on <coughs> excuse me, Wednesday of this week, we had Hotep in here, and he's saying, well, yeah, well, we got to fight back against all this nonsense from a legal perspective. You got to take it to the courts. You got to do lawsuits. You got to do all that kind of stuff. It's both. I think it's both. Yeah, do do it, do it all. I understand like, at the metaphysical level. Like, I, I'm gonna take my. I'm gonna give one more metaphor because I started with the ship metaphor. Like, for anyone who's been on a cruise ship, they make you go to the muster stations before they set sail or immediately after they set sail. They show you where your life jackets are. They show you where the lifeboats are, and everybody's got a lifeboat assigned to them. And you know, you're obviously not hoping to use these things you're hoping that it's a very smooth sailing experience with nothing but booze and shows and endless buffets and and meals but in case something happens if the seas get rough if the weather gets rough you're you've got your defense and i i like i think that's the right balance with bitcoin like we're trying to build as great a system as we can to onboard people as smoothly as possible to put our arms around them to give them the cruise line experience and we live in a world where the seas can get rough, uh, yeah. where someone can declare war. And so and so we've and that to me is the most important. Like this is a ship with lifeboats. And if you take your coins into self-custody, you've got a lifeboat. Uh, yeah. And you can, right. you can never take your eyes off the ball, man. You got to understand that there are people in this world who aren't like other people. Like they have no problem doing things to harm you. These people exist. I, I don't know what it is with people that, that want to believe that these people aren't around. I've dealt with these people. I'm telling you, they exist. And so uh, you can't take your eye off that ball. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I definitely, I mean, I, we, need to, we need to build in that direction. We need to prepare for that direction. We need to, you know, educate and have pathways and have optionality if that's what that's what happens but you know i think my only point and i think we agree here you know tom i don't i don't really think like we're on fundamentally like on on a base level um but i just think as much as possible my you know at least in, at this moment what i see we should we should as much as we can we don't have full control over this like you said we can't really control this but as much as we can massage the path of this thing where in my opinion we avoid any sort of direct confrontation until we're at least an order of magnitude bigger. I mean, I think that's optimal. It's ideal. Yeah. What if it doesn't happen though? Okay. Here's the thing. Don't yeah. answer that question because <laughs> we'll spend another hour talking about it. Let's do this. We got a couple more hands up. Let's hit those hands and then let's move into macro. Shall we? I want to talk about Bitcoin is Venice. This book is amazing. I'm freaking out. If you haven't read it, go pick it up. It's awesome. Robert, what are you thinking? Yeah, uh, man, great conversation. I, I I had a question coming back to the, the Coinbase um, discussion that we had earlier. And I, I guess it's a question for everyone here. What, from a business impact, right? If you think of it, um, um, how they are approaching risk management, um, what is the outcome, thus the impact that they are actually going for um, with that approach of of um, actually putting these lawsuits out, and is this a case of know your know your enemy? Um, so is this part of the plan because it affects their, the business impact on on everything they do? 
So a question, any thoughts, if anybody had uh, about that as far as risk management for them? So I think the primary thing they're trying to avoid is a disruption of fungibility on the network. Uh, the issue with the OFAC sanctions is that it essentially creates like blacklist coins and whitelist coins. And like the moment that happens, it's kind of dead. Um, as soon as fungibility gets disrupted, then Coinbase is in a position where, oh, you can only work with like whitelisted coins, but then it's like, okay, well, how many hops? Like if they're permanently blacklisted, then all of this collateral gets destroyed from the network and anything which goes through it, people cycling it through, increases the size of the blacklisted coins. And you just see this really pervasive impact when fungibility gets disrupted that uh, it, it essentially is like complete centralization of the system. And I know we talk about how, you know, maybe that's already the case, but like it is on an even more profound level where the only viable assets that can participate in like the mainstream system and that have any convertibility to fiat. So it's, it's fungibility and it's the ability to convert into fiat uh, that really are, are, are what's at stake here. My turn. <laughs> yeah, not sure. Okay, if thanks. Robert doesn't uh, have any follow up. Go, Jim. Yeah. So, um, I I was curious about the coin, you know, Coinbase's position regarding Ethereum moving to proof of stake, and um, I I hear what Stephen's saying about the fungibility aspect. Uh, just to make a comment about that, I don't believe that'll ever really happen in Bitcoin, even if somebody tries to make it happen. There's always got to be some some enforcement at some level, and a black market for black-listed Bitcoin would develop, and people would just hate it because it's a peer-to-peer -peer system, and they nobody knows what they're doing. But I am curious about the bigger picture of how this moving to proof-of-stake affects say Coinbase specifically, Sam, you seem to know a bunch about Coinbase's position and what they're doing. Um, and will that affect, I mean, it seems like it might affect their overall business plan, but the larger question is, you know, does it make uh, Ethereum uh, appear, either appear or be really more centralized and therefore taking it out of that bucket of decentralization that Gary Gensler wanted to allude to There's more than one other than Bitcoin. I think he was alluding to Ethereum. So I'm just curious if anybody has an opinion about the legal ramifications, essentially, and then I guess the corporate ramifications for a place like Coinbase having to deal with now the, the, this big, huge proof of stake network that's no longer proof of work and, and it has different quality. Whoever's interested, whoever knows about that, I'd be curious to know. I would take a guess and if anyone else wants to, to hop in, but I would say that like the, the, the OFAC scenario with tornado cash doesn't have too much implication in whether it's a security or not, that's going to be determined by other, other criteria that he, he's looking at. Um, this is more about, you know, a security versus non-security is more of a quality of the asset and how it was issued and who maintains it. Whereas like, sanction like OFAC or non-OFAC is more of like a description of what you can do with the protocol. Are you, are you um, and what the, what the, sorry, are you saying that the uh, Coinbase is more about the sanctioning stuff versus the protocol level stuff? 
and that's why they want to sue. Okay, yeah. see, I wasn't I wasn't completely aware of that distinction on why they were suing the judgment or whatever. So I appreciate that. Um, still, the bigger question though: um, Will Ethereum become be viewed as more centralized and therefore fall under the regulations of a security as soon as it goes to proof of stake? I see a lot of people that to stay alive out there. There's a lot of money sloshing around, and uh, I could see a, a lot of pushback, but. How could you argue that it's not more centralized when you got a handful of validators? I wonder how that's going to play out. Well, ironically, I actually I view the sanctions issue on Tornado Cash as actually, you know, if it proceeds in the way that they want, the ultimate kind of centralizing force. Because the moment you interrupt fungibility, like the problem with Ethereum is you know, without debating how decentralized the base layer is, it's very clear that all the protocols built on top of it are very centralized. They're, they're issued by corporate teams. There, there's equity, there's Uniswap, there's these things. And so if the, if the OFAC challenge goes through and they basically sanction any coins on the network that have touched this, this Tornado Cash protocol, then every single one of these DeFi protocols has to comply with those sanctions and they need to blacklist coins and interrupt fungibility on the network or they go to jail because there are people that can get thrown in jail. And so it instantly centralizes, it instantly just disrupts the whole network in a profound way where you have two options. Either you just comply and it's this like centralized gated thing or they have to like, create like a rebel fork. They have to like fork everything off. But the moment they do that, there's no more fundraising. You can't raise capital. There's no more VC money. There's no more all of these things. It becomes untouchable. So I, I actually, I, the, the sanctions, the OFAC thing, that is, that's the profound, it's a profound challenge um, if it proceeds. All right, good points. Let's. Um move into some macro stuff shall we let's talk about bitcoin is venice very cool book so this book is uh by alan farrington and sacha myers sacha is it sacha myers sasha myers someone correct me if i'm screwing this up please um very cool stuff i am going to read a little bit from the introduction and then I'm going to open it up to get some thoughts and comments on this because there's, there's so many profound statements that yeah. they make in this book. It's just, it was mind blowing. Like I've got, <laughs> I have so much of this thing highlighted and underlined and just like, it's just, it's really good. Okay. This is in the introduction of the book. Those who do not own hard assets are increasingly tending to drown in debt from which they will realistically never escape. Unable to save, except by speculation, and unable to afford the inflation and the essential costs of living that does not officially exist. These people. What amounts to an official message is the likes of Christine Lagarde, then president of the International Monetary Fund, and now of the European Central Bank, musing that we should just be happy to have a job than to have our savings protected. What is wrong with these people? Yeah. 
I mean, it, it goes back to, I mean, I think the earlier part of this conversation where we're talking about like, you know, it's this, it's this kind of longstanding debate between the role of saving and capital and like accumulating money and uh, the, the role of spending and evaluating economic health via like GDP or revenue. Um, and, you know, we just see this like pervasive ideology, like t- take over in the 1900s where uh, all economic health is filtered through this paradigm of, uh, of GDP, of money velocity, of top line revenue. It, it filters into corporates where every corporation is just trying to juice their next quarter and need to show more growth, more growth, more growth. And it is at the expense of capital formation, right? It's at the expense of making long-term right decisions. Uh, and, and these are the incentives that get, you know, built into a, to a GDP focused velocity focused top line, like revenue focused economy is you're always thinking about the next quarter. Um, at, at a later point in the book, Alan makes the example of it's an example. It's like a farmer eating his seeds instead of planting them. I mean, yeah, you can eat the seeds to survive till the next month, but you're fundamentally impairing your long-term capital formation. And uh, this is this debate between saving and spending, between having an income and having capital and savings that you can accumulate. You guys, obviously, I mean, we talked about where I fall on that side of the debate, but it, it's, it's a profound underlying ideology of, of everything that passes for modern economics and central bank theory. Yeah, and they, they, they essentially continue this messaging throughout every platform and medium that they can. It's pervasive throughout the institutions of the West. It's in the schools. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's in the regular discussions of the economy and finance. It's just, it's so crazy to me. Tomer. No, Sam had his hand up first and we're probably going to okay. talk with the same thing. So give him, give him, let him go first. Has, has Dr. <laughs> Callahan please weigh in here. Uh, no, uh, you know, it does go down back to like GDP and it's and Tom and I were having this discussion earlier this week. It's just, it's crazy that, um, you know, a lot of our policies still revolves around this metric that just basically measures more and more and more and more, but doesn't measure the sustainability of the economy or the growth. You know, Bobby Kennedy back in the sixties said that GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. doesn't measure health, education, uh, equality, uh, the state of uh, environment, the quality of life, it doesn't capture any of that. Like, for instance, you know, I could buy 10,000 worth of guns and kill 100 people with those guns. And I could also buy 10,000 worth of medicine and save 100 people with that medicine. And that would contribute equally to GDP. <laughs> like, that's how stupid it is. Like, it doesn't uh, you know, measure the positive or negative benefits of that uh, spending in the economy. It doesn't measure, even though you would kill a hundred workers versus save a hundred workers, it would measure that equally. And that's, it's just, there's so many flaws with how to measure the health of the economy through just how fast it moves and how much spending occurs, how much production of services and goods occurs. It, it doesn't measure the actual long-term viability of the economy and it's and what does is saving and investment and capital formation which steven has been talking about so i'll end it there so tell me you got anything to add 
Yeah, I, I'll just make a side point because I know this is bothering Alex right now. You could also buy $10,000 worth of medicine and kill 100 people with it and buy $10,000 worth of guns and save 100 people with it. So I just, they're for you, Alex. But um, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Tim. I, I just didn't you. want the context to be mis- mis- misconstrued. Um, the, the point that I was going to, like, you, you're, you're starting to make this very, this qualitative point, this spiritual point around what are, are we trying to generate economic activity to what end? Is it simply to pump up a short-term number like GDP, which we think is wealth? And, and I want to take it, you know, for people who, there's so many people here who are investors and who have studied how to invest or studied accounting. And I say, looking at GDP, to the extent that it's even correct, is like evaluating a company based only off of looking at its income statement. And everybody knows that there are three financial statements that you look at. You look at the income statement, you look at the statement of cash flows, which in the fiat economy is just a complete forgery. It's completely cooking the books. But you also look at the balance sheet and what you're looking at in the balance sheet, ultimately to measure the value of an enterprise is its equity. It's the book, the book value of its equity, which you may sometimes adjust for goodwill, which is a spiritual component. It's qualitative component that we talk about. But when we look only at the income and we're trying to optimize only for income in the short term and we're never looking at the equity, that's when we make decisions like let's eat our seed. Let's take apart our factories because we can increase the income short term by shipping things overseas and multiplying things using Keynesianism. And so a lot of a lot of this problem that we have right now is we're not focused on building things that last. This is a low time preference problem or the high time preference problem of the fiat economy which is fueled by staring and optimizing at the gdp and playing games with it right like the whole of keynesianism is this rationalization to take away people's savings and capital and have the government spend it so that that according to the way that keynes calculates income creates this multiplicative factor but it's highly inflationary and it's capital that's misdirected because it's not where the earners and creators of the capital wanted to send it. So uh, we're, I'm sure you, you and I, Sam, and many others are going to be writing a lot about this view. But there's this breakthrough that we've got to get away from focusing on this one number, which is short-term income that's manipulated and gamed by changing the rules of the game, and focus on long-term total value, both quantitative and qualitative. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, it's very gameable. It's very, very, it's very, uh, it, it doesn't tell you the whole picture at all. It tells you nothing about the formation of capital. It only tells you about flows. It only tells you about income. You know, you could, you know, I, I could two scenarios, like, let's say, let's imagine two companies that have make a million dollars a month in income. And one of them makes that million dollars because they borrowed $100 million and used it to pay for advertisements on Facebook. And they're just spending, you know, they're spending $10 million a month on Facebook to generate $1 million of revenue. And the other business gradually built up their product and their customer base, you know, without taking on debt, without taking on financing and you know, they're generating a million dollars a month and some of that is profit. Like both of those have the same revenue. Both of those generate the same same amount of income. Um, 
but they're very different. They're just very different animals because that, that number obscures um, underlying formation of capital. And it's this, this notion that like the point of all of this, the point of the machine, the machinery of capitalism is to promote the growth, accumulation, maintenance, and compounding of capital. And that's what makes civilizations abundant. That's what makes us have access to good yeah. things that make our life I better. I would like to <clears throat> point out and argue that it's actually the savings and formation of capital and then redeploying it efficiently. That's actually what capitalism is. What what people see today is they're they're seeing the transfer of wealth from the mass of society into the hands of the few. That's not capitalism, guys. That's theft. Yeah, absolutely. I had a, I had a tweet I think the other week or something, and I had a post as well that um, if you know you go out in the world today, and there's a lot of people that are very anti-capitalism, right? That you've all kind of encountered these dialogues, like capitalism is the root of our problem, late-stage capitalism, all these things. If you ask ten of these people to define capitalism, you'd get ten different definitions. No one would say the same thing because nobody knows what the word means, and they would say things like private ownership or the existence of corporations, rents, landlords, loans, interest, all of these things, we had them in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia had the ability to produce rental incomes. They had loans, they had interest. Rome had corporations that could own property that could sue and be sued. So none of these structures are fundamentally new. And so if we're gonna define capitalism as anything, it's it's it is the system that prioritizes the process of capital formation of saving and deploying capital and producing an efficient return that's what it really mm -hmm. is. and and nobody yeah, and it, it's on a large scale right <clears throat> the idea is that you know we've turned this into this way to create businesses which hopefully produce something of value to society but if you go back and you think about it from a first principles perspective Human beings engage in capitalism. Every human being does, whether you like it or not. Some people are not going to like this, but go back to the caveman days, right? You're in a cave with a stick and a rock. You're rubbing your sticks together and your rocks and you're trying to make fire and all this other kind of stuff. What really is wealth? Wealth is anything up and above what you need for basic, basic survival. So you have a cave over your head. You know, you have food. You have some clothes on your back. Now you can start trying to um optimize your energy and store it in a way and then redeploy it in a way that makes your life better at a very very basic level that is capitalism yeah so i i would actually i and i, I basically agree with you i'd, I'd add a, i'd add a detail though um i think everybody like descriptions of markets production these things it's, it's just a description of reality that's just what humans do it's not a system it, it's just describing what happens um but I would actually say that, that we don't innately engage in capitalism, at least in this narrow definition, particularly if you're in survival mode. Like capitalism is, in essence, low time preference and low time preference is capitalism. Um, and people don't don't innately do that. Right. There are people that have very short term thinking. They're not they're not trying to compound their their wealth and available capital. Um, but but I, I, I agree with your larger point, though. I mean, people are innately engaged in these sort of activities of acquiring resources, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it, it skips the savings part. Like today, what people are doing is, is that they, they get the money and then they spend it, right? But 
it's all about trying to make your life better. So in their minds, they're really trying to do the same thing. They're just skipping the savings part. Sure. Yeah. Well, a lot of kind of interrupts the whole thing. I think what a lot of this comes down to, I'm very much resisting making a, a wisecrack as to what's been said, but um, there are people are trying to keep certain processes going. Most importantly, their lives. Right? And whether it's the caveman who needs to keep the fire going so that he can stay hot or, or keep the family going so that the whole family can survive or to keep or whether it's to keep the power generator going, which is just a modern version of a fire, just scaled up much higher to keep the farm going, to keep the cycle of crops growing. These are all processes that we need to keep going. And we can measure how big they are at any point in time. The fire is really big, the fire is really small. But if we burn out the fire because we throw all of our wood on it at once and then the fire goes out, that's when we trade off the short term for the long term. And that, I think, is what has been the theme of what we've been trying to describe in the last little while, whether we use the word capitalism or not. It's like it's the sustainability of the things that we're trying to pursue because we want to we want to be healthy and happy and lit and alive uh, for, as, for as long as possible. And that was what needs to be the focus of of individual lives and of a civilization as a whole. And when when that focus is disrupted, when people start to do things that don't prolong the processes, but game the system, right? Like in the fire, in, in the caveman situation, there's no measure using money. There's like, is the fire going? Do we have food to eat, right? There's, there's no numbers gaming. But as soon as we put a number on these things, suddenly somebody says, well, you know, if we hire more worthless administrators uh, and pay them a whole bunch of money, now we've increased the value of the economy. And so we're all richer we're all better off, but we're really no better off. We've just added red tape and bullshit jobs to something that was working fine before and yeah, certainly not working better. You've made it less efficient, not more efficient. Yeah. So you, you, what you've done is like you've thrown some water on the fire, right? Uh, and, and when we think about these things as processes that we want to continue and improve, we want our education to be good, to continue and to improve. But what we can actually observe with lots of statistics or just qualitatively is that our education has gotten bigger in terms of measured value, but much worse in terms of actual value. We're not taught to think as much. We're not actually taught as many things as before, but we put lots more money and lots more time into not being as well educated as we were before. I think much is true. I don't want to be too... Uh, widespread about this, but I think a lot of it is true about what's happening with our healthcare. It's certainly happening with our food, and it's you know it's certainly happening with our government. It's happening with a lot of things, and that's because this that's where the fundamental breakage is. Right, we're not focused on the true value. We're focused on this monetary value with a broken money that it's easy to game and disrupt and and interfere with in all sorts of different ways. It's not just the money printer itself. I think that may be kind of at the root of it, but it's all these machinations that are played that inflate the GDP. And, uh, and that's not just monetary debasement and, inf and what we call inflation. It's, it's gaming to make it look like we're richer than we are while we're actually getting poorer. We're tricking ourselves. I want to share, um, absolutely. I want to share a quick story um, that, uh, something I observed the other day that was just, I, I feel like one of the most useful examples in expressing this concept. So um, in the book and in certain economic discussions, I think there's this good way of framing 
of what growth really is, of what entrepreneurship really is, of what capitalism at its essence is. Um, it describes it as like markets exist in a state of disequilibrium. They're not balanced. If they were balanced, then there'd be no profit to be made everywhere. Everything would be efficient. Everything would be done. And because it's not efficient and because it is in disequilibrium, entrepreneurs are able to exploit and order. They're able to bring order to pockets of disequilibrium and in doing so get profit. And that is basically the reordering of capital. They're, they're taking previously unused or underused capital and they're using it in a new way. And I saw the most incredible example of it. It's really niche, but I, I, it explained the concept, I think, better than anything else. I have a friend in my area who uh, is an environmental restoration. Uh, he, he owns an environmental restoration company. They do like native plants and like, you know, making landscapes, right? Like specifically to, you know, go with the, the native environment. It's a niche. It's a niche business. It's an interesting business he does. And... What he does, his entire hiring process, his talent pipeline, is he, he basically just hires all of his people from this one school that is like very, very kind of, you know, kind of, kind of progressive. That's these students that otherwise would be doing nothing, that would We lost you. Did anybody else lose Steven or just me? Yeah, no, I lost him too right after the word nothing. Steven in the Matrix. Yeah, he fell off. Might have to reconnect. It is a suspenseful buildup that we've got, so hopefully he can reconnect. I want to know why these progressive students are doing nothing. Well, exactly. Maybe give Stephen the boot and that'll give him the message that he's got to come back in because he's probably still talking. I know that's happened to me before. <laughs> that's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tomer's walking down the path in the forest talking into his phone. <laughs> Said things he could never repeat, right? Or say exactly yeah, no, the guys, same way. You guys have missed my best stuff when I've been on, in the Matrix, just on, all alone walking. If Tomer is if Tomer is monologuing in a forest, um, and nobody hears him, does anybody hear him? Did we he actually say anything? <laughs> did, did he philosophize? Yeah. The the best one would be uh, Lisa Ho uh, walking down the street in uh, Texas somewhere, screaming into her phone, and nobody hears her. Huff, is that a real Lisa person? Huff. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah, Huff. My bad. <laughs> Oh, that was really bad. I apologize. Okay. All right, when did back. I drop? I didn't even realize. You said progressive, <laughs> progressive school where these well, kids are doing nothing. Oh, my God. Okay. You, 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 dro you, dropped, you dropped when you were saying the best stuff. Oh, my no, God. So, wait, I got to finish this. It's really a great story. So, okay. I have a friend, environmental restoration company, native landscaping, helps homeowners, homeowners associations deal with pollution, algae, fertilizer runoff, all that sort of stuff. So his entire talent pipeline is these students at this very progressive left school who otherwise like 
wouldn't really be eager to work or like do like do these sort of specific things, but they're really motivated because it's like they're doing something good for the environment. They get really excited. So he goes to the job fair and he puts up a booth and all these people want to work for him. And he hires, hires these people to produce value, do his company. And it was such an example of those students, that labor pocket was this unused pocket of capital that no other person had figured out how to turn into value. There was like traditional models didn't work. And there's no way you could have analyzed that. There's no model. There's no quantitative analysis. There's no way to be like, oh, yes, we need to take the third year progressive college students and turn them into environmental. Like, no, you don't you don't you don't know that from top down. But as an entrepreneur navigating the unknown and the disequilibrium of markets, he identified this 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 pool of capital, of talent, of labor that was not being used. And he found a unique way to order that and to produce greater order. And I thought it was just, just the best example of uh, how this happens. And specifically from the angle that it is the unknown. It is unknowable. It is not formulaic. It is not modelable ahead of the fact. It is just humans navigating the disequilibrium of markets and finding new ways to use our resources. All right. Well, we've got about seven minutes left in the show, so we can hit one more topic here. Um, open to questions. If anybody wants to do questions, we can do that as well. Uh, and then we'll move to closing comments and start wrapping up. <clears throat> I do have one thing that I want to hit here as well. I mean, there's so many things in this book that we can continue to hit, but um, there's this part where they're talking about some social units can avoid collapse into neo-feudalism by embracing Bitcoin. What the heck does that mean? It means that those social units that voluntarily choose to embrace Bitcoin, a global digital sound, open source, programmable money will be in a position to accumulate long-term oriented capital at a disproportionate rate to those who do not. This is kind of obvious to all of us, but they go on to say they will have a superior economic foundation from which to build healthy social and political institutions, which will contrast to those left behind as medieval Venice did to the remnants of the Western empire. That last part, just like when I read that, I got chills. It's such a good book. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my, it's in my opinion, the best Bitcoin book I've ever read hands down. I mean, it's, it's and then not just a Bitcoin book, but economics, finance, it's so broad. It's so insightful. I'm just a huge fan. One of the things I think uh, somewhere in that passage or after that passage, um, he also makes a statement saying that one of the most incredible things that Bitcoin did or has done is not just the network, not just the coin, not just the technology, not just the money, but it has actually connected humans together that share certain values, certain ideas, certain tendencies. And so the community of Bitcoiners, I think, is one of the most incredible parts of Bitcoin because it just disproportionately is made up of this very specific sorts of people with certain values. And, you know, while I think the population is growing, there are, you know, 
people who are willing to rethink systems, people who are willing to question traditional narratives, largely generalists, largely nonconformists, and just these really interesting broad thinkers. Critical so his, thinkers. Critical Especially thinkers. critical exactly. thinkers. People who can think for themselves that don't just buy all the shit that people that someone else is feeding them and take it at face value and then parrot it back as truth. Exactly. And, and, and Bitcoin has just organized this incredible network of people that are A, working on Bitcoin, but B, just it's connected these people together that would otherwise not be connected. And Corey, our, you know, CEO of Swan, uh, he had a tweet about this recently where he was saying that if it wasn't to work on Bitcoin, you could never hire all of the people who work at Swan to work on the same thing uh, for a lot of different reasons. But it is uniquely the project of Bitcoin. That, that enables that particular talent pool to come together. And it's, uh, it, you know, I see that more broadly, not just that with Swan, but the entire Bitcoin community is that, I, you know, I'm connected with people through Bitcoin that I, I never would have connected with otherwise. And it's incredibly valuable. Speaking of which, I want to encourage people who are kind of on the fence and they're trying to decide if they want to go to Pacific Bitcoin or not. <clears throat> We talk about this phenomenon where, where Bitcoiners get together and you find out, oh my gosh, we serve so many of the same values. <clears throat> I think there are a lot of, okay, this was my experience in life. I've always been sort of an out-of-the-box thinker. I'm not trying to uh, toot my own horn thing. I I'm basically saying I felt like I was diff different and alone a lot of through a lot of my life because I'd look around and be like, is everybody crazy or am I crazy? Am I the only, am I crazy? Am I the crazy person here? And what I realized over time uh, in hanging out in spaces like this and talking to Bitcoiners and getting to know Bitcoiners in person, especially, especially, especially in person, you start to figure out, oh man, I'm not alone. These are my people. This is my fam. Like there are a lot of people who think like me. I just didn't, I didn't know that. And uh, Bitcoin brings these people together. So if you're thinking about going to Pacific Bitcoin, you're like, oh man, it's it costs a lot. Travel costs a lot. I got to take time out, all that other kind of stuff. You're not alone. Go, go there and you'll figure it out. Like just the relationships and the bonds that you will build are, are amazing. I second that. Hey, Alex, just real quick. I put in the nest, uh, you know, Alan Farrington himself tweeted, it's probably a couple of months ago, basically a free PDF of it. So for those that like to read it online, you know, go up to the nest and you can download a PDF, obviously support, you know, buying the book if, if you like the physical book, but uh, a PDF of that book is available for free. They literally say in the in the introduction, we want people to go copy this and read it for free, get it on, on online. They want people to do that. They just want to spread the word. So they're less about making money on the book than they are about people reading the book. So 100%. Well, all, all the sales from the book get donated to the Human Rights Foundation, too. So they're making zero money on the book. It's, it's entirely right. just to put it out there. Which goes to uh, support... Bitcoin Cord Epps. Yeah, Gladstein. Yep, yep. And other things, but uh, I believe. Maybe I'm wrong there. But yeah, it goes to goes to Alex Gladstein's foundation. All right, then. Last couple minutes of the show. Why don't we go around and get, get some closing thoughts on what we were discussing today? 
I think the theme broadly was um, that capitalism really is is savings and and redeploying of that capital. It's essentially, you know, it's like what Bitcoin does. You know, it it punishes misallocation of capital and it rewards um, savings and proper allocation of capital. Anything else you guys want to cover, Tomer? I'm going to have more to say about this. I'm, I'm actually in the process of writing about this as well. But I, I used to call myself a capitalist very unequivocally. Like when Facebook first said, what's your religion? I plugged in capitalism. But I've moved away from using the term in part because of what Stephen said. The, the words lost its meaning. You know, you ask 10 people, you get 10 different definitions. And then Steve and Alex weigh in and now we have 12 different definitions. And I think that there's more... Um, there's actually more common ground between people who call themselves capitalists and people who reject the idea of capitalism because they're not debating the same things. And, uh, and so I, I just ask people to keep an open mind towards each other. Bitcoin is bridging the gap between people who call themselves capitalists and people who call themselves socialists. And that's, that, that's actually really interesting because it's, it's not that they actually disagreed on many fundamental things, but the capitalists look at socialist systems in practice and say, this is awful. How could you stand for this? And the socialists look at capitalist systems in practice and say, that's awful. How could you stand for this? And they're both looking at how these things are falling apart in practice while not judging their own system by the same practical standards, but on theoretical standards. And, um, and Bitcoin is actually a practical system that works in practice. Nobody says, a lot of people say that wasn't real socialism and this isn't real capitalism. Nobody says this isn't real Bitcoinism. This isn't really Bitcoin. And, and this is why it's starting to make people aware of what's actually broken and create new dialogue between people. So there's, there's something really extraordinary happening that is refacilitating dialogue that was closed, that was impossible to have for the last 100 plus years and it's really extraordinary. And I'll leave it at that because I'll have more to say later. Peter? Hey, this is uh, slightly off topic, but it's important nonetheless. I just wanted to let everybody know that while this conversation was going on, I um, moved Bitcoin off of the Swan Exchange. I did it with Coin Control using 15 different addresses. Uh, to move. And I know people are, are acquiring Bitcoin now, and it's really important to get it off of the exchange, even Swan. I also want to say, I'll give a little plug for Swan, and I don't work for them. I, I forgot how to do a step, and I called, the reason that I had dropped off earlier was because I called Swan, uh, the Swan help, and of course they immediately picked up and got me on track, and I was able to do it. So I just want to say, once again, it's so important to get your coins off of exchanges please do it self-custody is easy peter i'm just curious you're saying you put your the balance that was on swan into 15 different addresses you know somewhere else or utxos yeah I, I i put it into cold storage okay cool and the reason that i did coin control like that was because in the future um there's going to be two things potentially going on one is high fees because of congested networks so um, I don't want to have a lot of large UTXOs, but I do want to have some large ones because I might make a large purchase. But I also want to have a variety of smaller sized UTXOs um, in the hundreds of thousands of sats range because I want some privacy so that when I go into a store and purchase a candy bar, 
I don't necessarily want someone seeing my entire balance. And that's why I do coin control. Makes sense, man. Very high on the autistic scale, Peter. Very high. Sam? Actually, only a yeah. 28. <laughs> yeah, no, shout out to, uh, to Reed over at Client Services at Swan. Uh, he's a secret weapon at Swan, and they're the best. So shout out to him. And I got to second that real quick because they're amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. Um, All the people at Swan um, Client Services are are fantastic they're, they're like special operations dudes they just they're just amazing and and try getting that on any other exchange can't find yeah. it um i think that you know and just to wrap up summary the conversation i just think a key point to understand is that a productive society does not require inflation uh only the credit-based monetary system that we have that re requires never-ending growth requires uh, inflation and the manipulation of currencies. Um, this just leads to inequality, civil unrest, and tears at the very fabric of our society, discourages people from being productive. We see quiet quitting and people giving up, and they aren't pursuing large life milestones like starting families. And this is all a result of the flawed credit-based monetary system that we have. And Janet Yellen tweeted just this morning that she's looking at all tools to increase productivity well, she should look at Bitcoin because it's probably the most important innovation we have to increase productivity. And productivity is the only way to have long-term sustainable economic growth. So uh, that's what I'll leave it at. That was so Love good. It. Yep. Stephen, any closing thoughts? No, I think I think everybody covered it pretty well. I love this. I love this conversation. Maybe that's the last thing I'll say is um, I think the thing I like so much about Bitcoin is Venice is it does an incredible job revealing what passes for capitalism, what passes for finance, what passes for investment today is basically all wrong. It 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 is basically this overly financialized, politically controlled fiat system that has very little in common with really what makes the, the basis of these, you know, of what were really, at least what was originally intended and what was originally meant uh, in these dialogues. And um, the book is amazing because it's just the systematic takedown of these mainstays of modern economics, like the efficient market hypothesis. There's an incredible chapter on leverage and why that fails. And um, just a, a really clarifying uh, if you don't have, uh, I mean, you know, and it, it's also kind of coming from like a math and physics perspective. Not, not, not totally. I don't want to say that's like what to expect reading the books, but it's written by guys with that sort of background and it causes them to think about these systems and these claims in ways that I don't normally think about them. And that was also really valuable. So definitely worth reading. Nice. And there's so much more. I mean, we barely scratched the surface. This has been a great combo. Um, appreciate you guys hanging out today and sharing. So that's pretty much a wrap. Bitcoin prices going ballistic right now 10.62 percent in the last 24 hours and what did you do mm. it wasn't me i promise <laughs> uh -huh. it was uh -huh. the stack chain it was stack chainers they're they're crazy over there and they continue to stack blocks regardless of the the market conditions or price hell yeah so, shout out, someone shout needs to out. get credit 
Shout out to the stack chainers. You guys are ballers, man. Love you guys. Okay. That's a wrap. We're done. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news on Bitcoin, a great place to learn about Bitcoin, a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry to just drop in, talk about what's going on. This is a podcast. If you can't catch the live show, it's up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple. Everywhere you get your podcast, you can throw myself a follow or Swan to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show, my crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. And Sam, thank you so much for hosting today. Uh, I'm your host of the show, Alex Danzig. I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you want to know more about Swan, you can shoot me a DM. I'm happy to help you. Thanks again to all the speakers and the speakers who come on here all the time. Appreciate what you guys do. Um, sharing this bright orange feature with the rest of the world. This is what we call getting on the mission. We've got a lot of work to do, guys. We're not done. Every single one of you matter. All of you. All you cafe Bitcoiners out there. <clears throat> orange pilling the people around you anybody who stands still long enough to talk about it you know what i'm talking about everybody go out there have a great day today i love all you guys brush it <laughs>